on the Dallas Opera Network. You're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh, let's get ready to rumble! Wherever you are, however you're listening, it's America's talk radio show about opera. It's Opera Box Score. I'm your host, George Cedarquist, joined by Matt Cummings, Weston Williams, and Ashley Hardgrave. All right, this week we go inside the huddle with director Rose Freeman and soprano Angela Bourne, whose work is currently running in a double bill production with Third Eye Theater Ensemble right here in Chicago. And then Chalk Talk. As we're taping our show now, Monday night, Terrence Blanchard's opera Fire Shut Up in My Bones is opening the season at the Metropolitan Opera. We talk about the plethora of ways this is a truly monumental occasion. Plus two-minute drill. We've given out red cards and yellow cards. This time, you might have to wave a green flag or give out a green card. Find out who that's for when you get all your headlines from the past week in opera. Hey, if you're watching on Dallas Opera Network, you want to make sure you subscribe to the full podcast Stitcher Radio. You can also just favorite the show on Apple Podcasts. Matt Cummings back from a long sojourn away, lamenting his uh, Steelers losing on But Sunday I still afternoon. showed up just for you, George. Let the record show. <laughs> you did indeed. You did indeed. Weston Williams, Weston, are you wearing the same shirt as Matt? Uh- <laughs> Well, I've been on this podcast long enough to remember when Matt didn't have a beard, and then I came on the show, and all of a sudden he had a beard, and now he has my shirt. One of us is going to have yeah, to Yeah, actually, I'm wearing the same shirt as Weston. Yeah, don't get I mean, it twisted. This is very single white female. Bridget Font is going to be here any second. <laughs> Thank you, Ashley Hargrave, for not having a beard and not wearing that uh, shirt. Though you're missing out, it's pretty comfortable. It is very comfy, I will say that. Ashley, how are the Blackhawks doing fighting the pandemic? Uh, As of Thursday, the first day of training camp, when they were back on the ice, they were 100% vaccinated. And Jonathan Taves is back. He was back on the ice for the first day of training camp on Thursday, which is very exciting. So everything's coming out Millhouse over there. We're very excited. (laughs) Well, for the Hawks, get this. Justin Tucker, it's a name you've heard us talk about on the show before. Former opera singer who is now a kicker for the Baltimore Ravens. On Sunday afternoon, he kicks the NFL's longest field goal ever, 66 yards. It was against the Lions, Natch. 66 yards, hits the crossbar, and then bounces in. He says that he wants to kick a 70-yard field goal one day. Gotta have goals. I feel like this trivia piece was genetically engineered specifically for our (laughs) brand. Yes, yes. He knew. I don't. I don't think I could run seventy yards, let alone kick a football. That I'm far... seventy yards long already, so it's fine. <laughs> Let's talk some opera. Huddle up. Let's go inside the huddle. It's Opera Box Sports, America's talk radio show about opera. So thrilled to have Rose Freeman and Angela Bourne on the show. Rose Freeman teaches, stage directs, and produces theatrical performance in multiple performance mediums. Recent projects include development for a book on acting methods for opera, writing a musical about an alligator in Chicago, and serving as the directing fellow at Wolf Trap Opera in 2020 and 2021. Z is a founding member of Third Eye Theater Ensemble, 
Commended for her fire and dramatic conviction on stage, Angela Bourne is an opera theater artist highly committed to artistic integrity and authenticity as a proud company member with Third Eye. She was tickled pink that their production of Stitch landed the organization the award of Best Storefront Opera Company by New City Magazine and the nomination of Best Opera of 2019 in the Chicago Reader. Third Eye Theater Ensemble is proud to celebrate their eighth season with the double bill of the Midwestern premiere of Kamala Shankram and Rob Handel's The Infinite Energy of Ada Lovelace and Elizabeth Rudolph's newly commissioned mini-opera Petticoats and Slide Rules playing at the Edge Theater in Chicago through October 3rd. Rose and Ashley, welcome to the show. Absolutely. Rose, I want to start with you. Uh, talk to me about this double bill. Uh, talk to me about what's appealing about these two women. Why this pairing? Yeah, um, so one kind of happened before the other. Uh, we were, you know, at Third Eye, we had done some, uh, we had done Stitch as a, as a digital production, as a double bill with a new opera um, by Alexis Enyart uh, called Witness. And we were like, okay, I think we can do these double bills. We can do new pieces. Um, do we want to try and go live? Like, is this the time to do it? And a few things kept sticking out. One, um, Third Eye does work that focuses on social justice. So as a consequence, our work is kind of a downer. Uh, and we didn't, <laughs> we didn't, we didn't want to do a downer, right? We were like, okay, let's keep this light. Like what's a nice romantic comedy where we can still talk about the issues of today. Um, and also let's not do anything huge, right? We wanted to get everybody out of the theater in under an hour and a half. Um, we wanted to be able to socially distance. We wanted flexibility. And the other thing that kept coming up is we've all been kind of raging against the literal machine of computers. Mm. And that is also the thing that has been keeping many of us functional or alive. And I wanted to have some gratitude in our work when we were coming back. Um, and Kamala and Rob's piece, The Infinite Energy of Ada Lovelace, hit that right on the head right and it, we could kind of keep it mostly in house we could keep covid restrictions it's a smaller cast uh it really kind of fit the bill but also it's a really funny wonderful gracious loving opera about a woman who invented computer programming right mm -hmm. and that's a piece of deep gratitude that i have because we we all kind of needed that and and Furthermore, I kept thinking about all the women professors and moms that I was seeing on Zoom that were having kids using them as a jungle gym or running off to grab their kid and still teaching. I was thinking about my mom when she was raising me and teach and, and trying to, to run her businesses and invent. I was thinking about my sister trying to run a business with two twin boys. And I wanted to talk about that and what that struggle was. I felt like that would really hit home. And when we looked at it, um, Jason Carlson, who's one of our music directors, and then um, Alexis Anyart, who is uh, uh, our other music director, or we call them the maestri, because um, they kind of work as a unit. Um, we're like, we could really use something to kind of introduce this piece, right? This is a wonderful piece, but what happens if we, we connect it to why now? And that led us to a woman composer who is uh, working through the work today. We wanted a local composer and we wanted a piece about uh, women in STEM and what that further continuance was. So we really hit on Elizabeth Woodridge and Lois Graham as that. And that really all came from Elizabeth Rudolph. 
Um, and I also very selfishly wanted to hear Molly Burke and Angela Bourne sing together. And so I definitely just threw that as like my one request <laughs> in commissioning this. And Elizabeth graciously gave that to me. <laughs> so that's how it came to be. And that's why we did it. Um, and it really paid off, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Angela, I, I just want to follow up for you. So hearing this from this amazing director, how does how does that feel to know that part of this piece was created specifically, this production was created with you in mind? I mean, good. <laughs> um, no, I, I mean, it means a lot. New music is kind of something that I've, um, my very first opera role that I ever got cast in was a new opera. Um, and so I've just kind of latched onto the art form. I find that I find, I feel really connected to, to the art form when I'm creating it like in real time. So this is really special to be able to like have the composer in the room and like make suggestions about how we want to phrase things and how we want to bring this to life. Um, and something that was really rewarding is getting to have this brand new piece that is, um, a mini opera, Shana, like it kind of like defies kind of this categorization um, and to see how it wanted to be born is the best way to put that. It, you know, we kind of like wrestled with it to see like we tried a couple different ways and it didn't work and then getting to like see what it like what would essentially make it shoot up like um, like, like to root down and shoot up the um, shoot up shoots. <laughs> shoot <laughs> <open>. um, <laughs> um, <laughs> Oh, uh, just kind of wanting to see what would give it um, the soil to like grow up out of. So anyway, um, so it was really special to me. I've been working with Rose for a long time. So this feels like coming home to do theater um, with Zier. So to have a piece created that we get to play with is really special. Did you have to uh, <laughs> learn how to use a slide rule for the production? I did not. <laughs> <laughs> that was the one thing I was wondering. And you're allowed to, really to admit learn. that in front of the director? <laughs> I know. It's fine. I really had to um, learn how to switch in between 9878 eight, um, with, a, with a one, two, three, one, two, one, two, one, two. Real, that was real strong. So, And the slide rule doesn't help with that. No. <laughs> it it doesn't help that, that Angie's also uh, playing Harriet Beecher Stowe. Uh, she's one of the Harriet Beecher Stowe's in the Ada Lovelace. Um, so she, she had a, she had her plate very, very full. <laughs> Blessedly so. On this, on this production. Everyone who's uh, sort of following opera news right now, uh, all, all the eyes seem to be on a lot of the big houses and how they're handling the return to live performance. Uh, obviously, Third Eye uh, Ensemble is not the Met or the Lyric in terms of scale, scope, budget, any of those things. So we wanted to like really bring in a spotlight uh, here on the show to a smaller company because we were curious, how, uh, how what has the transition back to live performance been like for you um, without these resources, um, you know, making your own sort of way? What, what's, what's it been like? What have the challenges been? Yeah, you know, when a giant moves, everyone really seems to notice. Uh, but if you really want to see something transform, I say look at look at the ants. Right, they're gonna mm. they're gonna move things. Um, one of the blessings of being a storefront opera company is that we are one intimate, two we are very accessible. We are with the people, like literally on the same plane as them, right. the same floor sometimes. Um, but three, we're just agile, right? We can, we we don't have a space. We don't have a staff. We're volunteer run. 
Um, so we can just kind of shut down and hunker down and just maybe make some art for art's sake. What um, a thought. <laughs> right? Well, because, and we're just all doing it for the love of it, right? This mm. We know that this company is never going to support any of us. If anything, I think it just costs us all a lot of money, but <laughs> whoa, do we love it? Uh, that said, we also don't have institutional support, right? So when you have an institution, it's really hard to fail as a director because there's a lot of money already invested in you succeeding and the production not, for lack of a better term, sucking. Right, there's right. other things that make it difficult, but that that can go, right? That, that, that actually makes things a lot easier, I find, when I'm working in bigger houses. Um, so the, this tech, we were very much so shaking off some rust, right? It was... And several of us had been working in bigger institutions in the more recent years. And then like, we're like, yes, we want to make some art for art's sake. Like, this is what we want to make. This is so exciting. And so we had kind of the, the double whammy of being rusty and not having the usual crew and team. So everyone had to work about three times as hard to create what we did. Mm. Um, that said, you know, you can do work for people, profit or project. And this is a people project reason and I would as Angie said third eye is also my home and I come back to third eye so I can feel spiritually whole again mm. and this is exactly what I needed how about you Angela what's the transition been like as part of the uh, ensemble yeah I mean what Rose was talking about it's been a, a little rocky um, some of it has felt really wholesome. Like, I don't know about how everyone else's experience with the pandemic, but I did a lot of soul searching about why we do art in the first place, <laughs> yes. um, kind of uncovering some scales that had maybe built up over the years. Um, so in some ways, it was really lovely to get to join together with folks and just create a, a, a safe, wholesome space to be able to explore this again and kind of get to know each other again as performers, like after all of this has happened. Um, there's definitely rust to shake off. Um, an interesting thing happened in that, um, I think it was um, in one of the tech runs, but we had someone had like made a little a little mistake, like just a little thing, like maybe flubbing a line or something. And I feel like we're used to being able to have this resiliency where we kind of like see that and just mentally clock it, but then like move past and adjust. But that vulnerability of being seen on stage like with the bright white light on you and then right. one makes a mistake and then there was it was a domino effect it was kind of astonishing there was like it was like, <laughs> like what is vulnerability um so you know and it's so funny because i i i think it was a it was a performance and so i actually asked an audience member and they had no idea that something had happened now they could be lying to me but i think they genuinely i'm pretty good at reading people and i genuinely don't think people caught it um, but we felt it. And so it's kind of this like learning how to get to this equilibrium of like, how do we do this again? And how do we make art and maintain who we are versus who we were and kind of blend to those two? Not to get too like woo woo here, but I feel like there's kind of some connection that needs to happen. So. And at, so as more and more of these groups in more and more places are hopefully able to keep coming back and returning to live performance, um, what do you think it is that that is going to look like? What, what are you hoping to see in the opera world as it moves off of being stuck only in the internet and starts to reincorporate live performances? 
I think about this every day. Like at least once a day, I kind of stop dead in my tracks and go, how is this all going to pan out? Right. Because we've been spending, you need faith when you don't have knowledge. Right. And in the last 18 months, a lot of us, that are artists for for very deeply spiritual reasons or for self-fulfillment reasons, I think, have been having a crisis of faith and having to really hold on to their faith, this kind of tiny little light. And now we're starting to add, I always say that like if live theater is sitting around a fire telling stories, Zoom theater is just screaming into the flames, hoping through alchemy, (laughs) something will come out on the other (laughs) side. I think that's really what we've all been doing. It's like, okay, I have this little flame and I'm going to whisper quietly into it. Maybe something will happen. And now the flame is starting to grow or like we're starting to see through it and, and people are there again. And I'm very curious to see how we relearn two dimensionality. I'm very curious to see, and I don't mean like emotional two dimensionality. I think we've had a lot of that. I mean, like <laughs> literally how space works in a two dimensional plane. Um, and how we feel about ritual and how it is to listen again. I think there's going to be some relearning and some cherishing of that. But I honestly have no idea what is going to carry over from what we learned in Zoom into into live performance. I, I know for me personally, I was watching one of the rehearsals and I was like, oh, man, we really need like a projection of like some ones and zeros in this moment. You know, and I was like, is that dumb? Let me just make it really quick and throw it up there, which, you know, two years ago, if you were like, Hey Rose, can you just hop on some platform and make a projection quick? I'd have just cackled and wandered away. <laughs> but instead I'm literally in rehearsal, like secretly making a video quick and like throwing it up just to see what it looks like. So I don't know. So maybe those things will come in and, and become important. Um, or maybe not, maybe we'll just go back to ritual and have a good time. Um, dump our computers in the lake saying thank you for your time <laughs> that's tempting i think about it every day <laughs> it's a few things i think about every day that, those are the, i'm gonna list right list. <laughs> what about you angela what, what are you looking for what are you what are you thinking about um, well, I, I certainly think that hybrid in some capacity is here to stay. I think a lot of people found, I think it was kind of nice to be able to get to see what your friends were doing across the country um, yeah, or across absolutely. the you know the world. I mean, that's a, a, you know, certainly technology has many things that make you want to throw it into a river, as Rose was saying. But like the opera that we were talking about, there's so many things that like really connect us. Um, I and, and some of it is just I'd be listening to I'd buy tickets to a friend's performance and I found that I could not sit still right like I couldn't just like hunker down in front of the computer and like watch right. like a good audience yeah. member I impossible but what I did find is that I would take them with me to every room of the house and I'd be like like cooking a meal and like tuning in for my friend and it honestly felt like I had a friend in the room like I, I, it still felt vital and real in a way that you wouldn't expect to. Like maybe we're like hearkening back to like the peanut gallery when people were like talking during a, perf- during a performance. It's like the 21st <laughs> love century. Love if we could start watching version. operas and having a snack. I would love that. I want a snack while I'm watching an opera. Like, give me my y'all, ice cream. Y'all don't well, do that because I absolutely bring snacks to the theater. Hero, <laughs> you're doing something. I, I need you. more bravery. <laughs> 
I think one of my favorite roles was when I was I was instructed to eat a pear while I was singing. I just got to have a snack and it was oh. written in for me. And I, that was great. I loved that. Anyway. Um, so Better yeah, than learning the slide rule. Yeah, yeah exactly. Can <laughs> eat no, pears. No we'll slide rules were slide rules. Production. Put that in my bio. <laughs> you know, I think, uh, I think yeah. there's, there's something about this this digital platform, though, that um, has forced us, at least as directors, Rose, I think, to become clearer. Uh, in talking to a filmmaker, uh, I was rest, I was trying to make a, a, a camera opera film and, and wrestling on how to do that. And he said, look, in per- live performance, the performer comes first and the narrative comes second. And I think that is one of the definitions of opera, right? Which is like, well, if that singer is phenomenal, who cares if the story is completely nonsensical and, and flat? But he said, in film the performance always comes second to the narrative, right? If the narrative is not crystal clear and compelling, what is the value of those incredible performances? That has forced me to try and to become a clearer director. What has that effect been on you as as you've toyed and tinkered with any sort of digital media? Yeah, I mean, I don't even know if like, I fully agree with that premise, um, all the artistic respect, but like, I feel like as a staging director, my job is to worry about the narrative and think about the narrative. The performance is the performer's job to worry about that. I mean, like, so my thesis was on acting strategies for opera singers, which I'm trying to turn into a book. And and the whole point of it is like, hey, what happens if we give them like ultimate agency and we let them like run wild and and just hand them a bunch of tools and and kind of, you know, just merely act as a rebound. Um, is one theory I have with it. I don't know if it's totally accurate or right, but that's what I'm looking at. And so, you know, music is is maestro's problem. Uh, the performance of it is the performer's problem and the, the narrative of it happens to be my problem. What I find with film and working within the medium of film is suddenly the audience's gaze is also now my problem mm. and within my control. And, you know... It, I, I often get teased that as a director, I got I became a director because I have control issues. And the irony is that becoming a director and becoming a good director means you have to relinquish all control because directors don't actually do anything. They just convince other people to do it. <laughs> and that is something I worked very hard on in my life. And then suddenly I felt like it was foisted upon me that I was now in control of the gaze of the audience where when I'm looking at production, I'm trying to create a ritual and an environment and a narrative which lives within that environment. And the audience can look wherever they want. And I'm just like trying to catch their eye at certain very key moments that they should probably be paying attention to. Um, But at film, I could just be like, no, look at it. Like, look at it right here, put your nose in it. And I hate that. (laughs) I don't wanna do that. I think um, I might, have more clear I think George you are right in the clarity of it and that now I can like really look at the composition of something in that way um as a director but I I cannot wait to get rid of the shackle of the audience's gaze and their the control of their gaze I want them in my environment when I'm doing live performance I want them to be able to look wherever they want and absorb whatever they need from the narrative and that is certainly not something that's necessarily, you know, part of the, the digital medium. A couple minutes left, just as we wrap it up, as you know, we are the, talk about sports almost as much as we talk about opera on the show. 
Angela, what sports teams are you following right now? Or if you're playing sports, what sports are you playing? Uh, well, what an excellent question you've asked. Um, so the sports that I follow is simply that my cats chase each other around, and so I cheer for them alternately. Uh, I know nothing about sports. My dad watched <laughs> the History Channel, and so that is as close to sports as I've got. So that's bad. Cat racing from Angela. Yeah. Rose, there you are in Philadelphia. <laughs> are you watching sports out there? Are you playing sports? I mean, like, I'm always rooting for Gritty, but uh, I am a... <laughs> who isn't? Who isn't? Gritty is life. Uh, no, but I am uh, I am a lesbian from Wisconsin, which means I am a Packers fan. Um, that, Darn tootin'. Yeah, oh, yeah, I got stuck, you know, in the basement right there. It's just, you know, a little piece of the set. Uh, so it's nice to see the Packers do a turnaround, right? Like, I'm, I'm really happy. The preseason wasn't so great for them, and then they, they got their stuff together they got it together and almost did it um but the real sporting thing i want to talk about is because i am a sailing nerd you want to talk about relinquishing control oh. i am a massive sailing nerd uh grew up doing it love it helped run a sailing company for several years wow. and there's some hot scuttlebutt right now there's a race that's over 100 years old it's the longest freshwater race called the mac race it's in mm -hmm. it starts in chicago goes all the way to Mackinac island and a boat uh, called Arete, it's a trimaran, meaning it has three hulls, um, just beat the world record and completed it in 12 hours, which is pretty freaking sweet. But every sailor on every forum I'm on is trash talking this guy, being like, oh, yeah, you finished the race in September when the winds are really strong. Try it in July when there's a race. And everyone's... <laughs> Talking smack to this guy who just accomplished <laughs> <laughs> a great feat. Smack which... under the Mac. I love it. I can about this. I just I relate to him as a director who does something. They're like, well, was that right? I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> director Rose Freeman, Soprano Angela Bourne, part of Third Eye Theater Ensemble's double bill that's coming up. It's at the Edge Theater in Chicago through October 3rd. More at thirdeye.com. T-H-I-R-D-E-Y-E-T-E dot -E -E com. Thank you both so much for hanging out with us on the show. It's a pleasure. Chalk Talk on Opera Box Score. Great to have Third Eye Theater Ensemble on the show. Once again, a little bit of sports talk before we get into the second segment. Hashtag Opera on the Ball. It's the Fantasy Football League hosted by Opera Philadelphia. Tobias Wright of this show and I. Uh, Enemy of the show, Tobias oh, Wright. <laughs> oh for 2, but looking very good right now. Yes, we are currently in 12th place out of 12 teams. Uh, but we are poised for victory this week. I feel really good about that. Probably not as good as Ashley and the Razorbacks. <laughs> ba -da -ba 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 -da -ba -ba -ba. That's the my undergrads fight song, not the hogs. But it doesn't matter. Uh, because <laughs> guess who won again this week? Guess who broke the top 10? Your undergrad? No, not my D2 Arkansas Tech University, <laughs> Wonder Boys, no. But they do have the second most unique uh, college mascot name in the country, right behind the UC Santa Cruz Banana Slugs, so go Tech. Uh, no, my beloved home state Arkansas Razorbacks 
won this weekend against Texas A&M. That means they have taken down Rice, they have taken down University of Texas, and they have taken down Texas A&M. They are now in the top 10 in the AP. It's the best showing they have had since 2012. You have to let us have this, guys. You're not going to get out of an OBS episode for the next, I don't know, rest of college football season without me talking about the Razorbacks because they have worked hard and they deserve it. So go Hawks. Very, very true. Uh, Dallas uh, playing Philadelphia tonight as well for the uh, TDO. Listeners currently on top at the half. All right. As we are taping our show, Monday night, Terrence Blanchard's opera Fire Shut Up in My Bones is opening the season at the Metropolitan Opera. That is not Something I thought I would probably ever say. Matt, let's get right to it. What has Terrence Blanchard, the composer, been saying about this occasion? Yeah, so there's been a lot of press about this uh, debut because it's a it's a really big deal. It's the first opera by a Black composer to be performed at the Metropolitan Opera. Uh, and really... It is not going unnoticed that it that it took so long and or uncommented on. So there's a bit of a bittersweet tone to the coverage, but Blanchard has been incredibly gracious in all of his statements, talking and he talks about how um he's the first composer to get to have this opportunity, but he is by no means the first composer to have been qualified to have mm. that opportunity. Correct. And really I think it's so important as we like celebrate this milestone and experience an incredible new piece of art. Well, not brand new. It did premiere at Opera Theater of St. Louis a couple years ago, 2019, I think. Um, but new new on this kind of stage, just to acknowledge the history that brought us here and um, how f- how many people have been locked out of that kind of opportunity. And he really keeps bringing every interview that I read with him. He brings back this, this phrase of how he doesn't want this moment to be a kind of a, a, any kind of a token, but then that he wants to be a turnkey to be a part of the sea change. Uh, And you can even see that a little bit when you look at the history of how this piece made its premiere at the Met. It was originally scheduled for farther in the future than this. Uh, yeah. And was moved up to be the season opening for the reopening uh, after COVID, uh, a, a closing that was obviously not scheduled in advance. Uh, and and I'm not even positive that it was supposed to premiere this season. I think it was supposed to premiere next season at the Metropolitan Opera. But in response to the murder of George Floyd and all of the calls for um, greater recognition of the Black experience and the art form and in opera and at opera companies and be and uh, just the existence of black people in the arts, which so often at major companies gets like completely swept under the rug. Peter Gelb called him and and moved it up to to be the series season opener to um you know just shine a little bit more light on this and hopefully this is just the first of many steps to to continue that kind of dialogue. Friend of the show, Will Liverman, also in the cast, kind of leading the cast, really. Um, and, and talk to us about the the themes, Matt, from the operatic repertoire and how this piece is uh, playing with us. So I, I think it's uh, another thing that Terrence Blanchard has been talking about a lot when he's doing press for this opera is just how to make sure that everyone is thinking about the fact that this kind of a story, even though it's a story with all African-American characters, it has universal themes too. And all audiences should, should really be able to reflect on that and, and pay attention to that. And just the emotional power that radiates from recasting those universal themes with 
African-American black singers characters um, just really taps into the deep personal experiences that, that, that may be different too. Uh, there's a really powerful anecdote in a, in a time article about how, um, how the production team told the singers that they could sing with their whole voices in this production, that they should bring Mm. the singing that they did growing up in black churches with them. And just the kind of like visceral chills that you get on your spine when you listen to someone sing like that. Uh, And it was a really powerful reminder for me about how um, it's more than just plots. It's more than just representation in terms of who gets to tell their story, who gets to have their story told. But it, it goes so much deeper than that in terms of what it means to have your story and to be able to tell your own story up on stage. Uh, And what's really cool about this piece is that not only does it draw on those kind of really contemporary, uniquely black art forms like gospel music, like uh, black church music, like jazz, Blanchard is a, he's a jazz composer first, and, uh, but really he is drawing on the history of opera and innovating like well, ways that are well within the tradition of the work. Uh, there's a jazz quartet that really can stand in for like a Baroque continuo orchestra uh, <laughs> yeah. and yeah. opera going all the way back to like Lully and French operas that the very beginning of the art form have incorporated contemporary dance. And this work really makes a lot of use of, of dance. The, the co-director is a choreographer and uh, Ashley, I know, yeah, Ashley, I know that you <laughs> saw that video on Facebook. We're going to get to Ashley in a second. Weston, when we go back to Terrence Blanchard, what is the quote from him that has been resonating with you? Uh, well, it's from the same Time article that Matt mentioned, and I think he he, he spelled it all out, but I do want to read it just verbatim. Uh, this is uh, what uh, Terrence Blanchard, Blanchard said in that uh, article, uh, that interview. It says, I'll put it to you this way. I've been wondering why me, referring to why he was the first person to perf- have an opera performed at the Met. I don't want to let those guys down hale smith william grant still a bunch of people like that who have become before me even though i'm the first i am not the first qualified that's for damn sure we need to keep saying that right because i don't want people to get it twisted he is not mm-hmm. the first person but he's he's not the first person qualified to be at the med yet here he is there's this interesting sort of like dissonance there because part of me wants to be really excited that we're having this uh, this this first opera written by a uh, a black person, you know, at the Met, um, but at the same time, it's the first one after so long, and we know that from experience that just because uh, he uh, is up there getting it done, it's not necessarily going to stay there without the work being put in. I'm I, you, you remember um, the Met did uh, I can't remember the exact year, but I think in like 1905. 1910, something like that. They did the first, op- the Met did its first opera by, uh, by a woman, Ethel Smith. Um, and then its second opera by a woman was what? A hundred years later when Sariaho did L'Amour de Loin a few seasons ago. Just because you've opened the door doesn't mean it stays open. You have to keep putting that pressure mm-hmm. to really make sure that it stays in there. That being said though, um, this opera has some has legs. Uh, we've already seen it. Uh, people are talking about it even long before the Mets said they were going to have it open their season. Even before the pandemic, I remember this is one of the operas I was most excited to start hearing about because it was popping up everywhere. Everyone wanted to do a production. Uh, the Mets 
needs this production, but this production doesn't necessarily need the Met. Do you know what mm-hmm. I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, uh, it is important for the Met, as I've said so many times and will continue to say, the Met is sort of like the benchmark of like what's acceptable. You know, if you see uh, if you see the Met doing something, basically that's permission for every company to be doing it for good and bad. And I will say, I am excited that it's not just the Met. The Lyric Op Chicago is doing it uh, later this season. I'm very excited to see it live in the same season that the Met is doing it, which is also kind of wild to me. You never see that between the Met and Chicago. Um, it's, a lot I, of, I, it's a lot of seasons. It's a lot of seasons. <laughs> it is. Uh, a lot of seasons. Ashley, the coverage for this premiere tonight has kind of been off the charts. It has. It's 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 been more universal and reached more communities and eyeballs than most of the marketing that any A house in America would ever do. Uh, there's two things that I want to point out kind of as examples of this. Um, so the Met released on social media, specifically on their Facebook page or the metrics that I'm going to talk about, a video of a step sequence that happens in mm. in this piece. And the step sequence, that's that's a big deal for a lot of reasons. And I say this knowing full well that none of this is, I, none of this is mine. None of this is for me. I don't represent this community, but I have heard from enough people and I have seen with my own eyes what a big deal this sort of representation is. So I'm, I am here only to sit back and be excited and congratulate and say it's about damn time as opposed to like taking ownership over it. However, uh, so there's, there's a step sequence for the Kappa Alpha Size, which is a historically black fraternity, uh, that's over a hundred years old. It's one of the, one of the big four with, uh, Alpha Alpha and what's the other one? Alpha Kappa Psi? I can't remember the, pardon me for not getting all of my, uh, all of my Greek right um i i blocked the greek part of my life out of my <laughs> memory because it was far more traumatic for me than this experience was for them the point is it's like the met released a video of this step sequence coming out and it is it is not something we've ever seen on stage at the metropolitan opera before it also has metrics of views like nothing the metropolitan opera has released before yeah. in the two days that it has been out it has received over 55 thousand views as of recording time that number is only going to go up so by the time listeners you check this out on facebook which i absolutely encourage you to do it is electric uh that number is going to be even higher no video from the met that they have released on social media in the past week on facebook has gotten even one-fifth of the viewership that this step video has Mm -hmm. even eileen perez with her amazing end to the liberame and that you know pivotal uh verity requiem that we talked about that's only at around 40,000. So this has gone even beyond that. So to see this on that stage, talk about permission, like you mentioned earlier, that this is a revolutionary moment and it is just going to get bigger and bigger and we're going to see more clips like this coming out. Um, another thing I want to mention is uh, <laughs> what I'm calling the mainstream uh, media news coverage is, you know, we, opera companies advertise, they, they put things out, they're trying to get butts in seats, but then there's the series of media that is like the... The stuff that's on in the background at your grandma's house at the end of each day or uh, the stuff that, you know, uh, the grandma that is your Uncle Ashley has on in the background at her house. Because 
I'm not gonna lie. When I'm home, I'm watching you know the nightly news that comes on at 5:30. It's like an end cap to America's day. Uh, and today, on the day of this premiere, the final uh, end cap human interest piece on NBC Nightly News with Nestor with Lester Holt, excuse me, was coverage. It was a minute and a half long segment that was on this piece. They talked to Peter Gelb. They talked to Terrence. He hits all of the talking points that you've heard him, you know, heard him say in other interviews. And no Met coverage goes there. The amount yeah. of homes that are watching, you know, the big three, the 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 type of television you can only pick up with rabbit ears when you're in the most rural parts of America, the opera coverage doesn't go there. And this did. That, you know, 90 seconds of coverage about how revolutionary this piece is, you know, both for better and for worse, that's going to hit, you know, rural TV sets and, you know, places that the Met marketing could never go. My Aunt Brenda's going to see this. Rural kids in Mississippi <laughs> and Montana and Nebraska are going to see this and see what a big deal this is. And that's that's something we don't see really often. And I'm I'm again, I'm very excited about it. Matt, that's the kind of coverage money can't buy. That's very true. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't know you were going to throw it to me. (laughs) It's, I I think, you know, this is kind of my key takeaway of all of this is, is all of the things that we've said. It's like, what took you so long? It's about damn time. Still, this is a big deal. It's very exciting. And I, I think... I think there's value in celebrating the positive nature of this, celebrating the, you know, turnkey, not tokenness of of this day. Um, time will tell if we have to wait as long as we did for a second female composer to be produced. But I, I think it's okay to celebrate today, and I think it's okay to congratulate the people that are making this happen. A hundred percent, it is. It's it's a yes and moment. Yes, this is something to be celebrated, and what's next right the malcolm x opera anthony davis in a couple Mm -hmm. years time what else is coming on as as we trickled further down into the met ecosystem as well right it's not necessarily just the main stage how else is this going to go not only broad but deep we will see again we're taping on monday night as the premiere is happening we're going to see during this week how this continues to roll what else is right now the two minute drill This just in, the two-minute drill. All right, listen up. Here's everything you need to know about what happened in Matland this week. Uh, well, he stole my shirt. That's the first thing. Uh, a recent article in the New York Times contains a roundup of podcasts that opera professionals listen to. Some singers go for aria code. Some professionals go for screaming divas. A few even listen to switched on pop. But we can't shake the feeling that the Times may be missing one pod in particular. Uh, I can't think of one. New York Times, see me after class. Uh, Is this a green card? As of last week, theaters in Madrid, including opera houses, are going to be allowed to seat audiences at full capacity. Previous regulations only allowed 75% of seats to be filled. In trade news, friend of the show Will Liverman is set to become Virginia Opera's creative partner and advisor for the 2021-22 season, working with artistic and civic engagement teams to create programs and partnerships to foster long-term connections. Bringing opera to all communities is something I'm extremely passionate about, said the baritone. I'm excited to help introduce the art form of opera to new audiences right here in my hometown. 
Andrea Joy Pearson has been named Opera Omaha's new director of belonging and inclusion, working to create equity-based recruitment and employee engagement. Quote, it is imperative to intentionally create safe spaces where everyone has the opportunity to thrive, participate, and belong, said Pearson. On the disabled list, Jonas Kaufmann is out of the final two performances of La Forza del Destino in Munich, as the tenor continues to recover from his recent tracheal infection. Stefano Lacola will fill in. Exit stage right, Australian director Andrew Sinclair has died. His work was seen in the most prominent opera houses in the world, including the Royal Opera House, where he was a staff director, and Opera Australia. British librettist and translator Amanda Holden died earlier this month at age 73. Holden created original librettos for such operas as Brett Dean's Bliss and Mark Anthony Turnage's The Silver Tassie, for which she won an Olivier Award. She also created over 60 opera translations and oversaw the creation of a reference work that combined the knowledge of contributors from all over the world, The Viking Opera Guide. And on this day, September 27th, in 1732, it was the first performance of Pergolesi's Lo Frate Innamorato in Naples. 1779 saw the first performance of Arne's The Conscious Lovers in London. Franz Schubert finished his song cycle Winterreise on this day in 1827. And then in 1917, it was the birth of Italian soprano Sally Amato. English soprano Dame Josephine Barstow was born on this day in 1940. And also happy birthday to Elizabeth Futral, who was born on this day in 1963. Finally, in 1999, some Spanish tenor, uh, Placido Domingo, we don't talk about him, breaks, <laughs> broke his tie with Enrico Caruso, headlining his 18th opening performance at the Metropolitan Opera. And that is your two-minute drill. That was soprano Elizabeth Futral in a pirate recording of L'Elysir d'Amore at Washington National Opera from 2006. Um, I have seen Futral a couple times in Chicago, and she sang a good bit at New York City Opera. Just a really underrated American mm-hmm. soprano. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Such good stage presence, really charming, and a voice for days. Yeah. She uh, she had a really good, like, solid run in Chicago. Mm-hmm. I would say, like... 04 to like 2010 2011 you know you couldn't you couldn't turn around without seeing her show up in something <laughs> and it was a uh, what a time to be alive it was delightful it's true we don't talk about uh dacido flamingo very much Who on the show but <laughs> I, I thought it was cool that that there was this tie with uh, caruso in terms of headlining the the metropolitan opera also let me just say that that is the first two minute drill in a long time that was actually remarkably close to two minutes <laughs> yeah we're doing it sometimes we're doing it sometimes cool. all, oliver didn't it. oliver didn't clog up the uh uh the on this day with 40 operas that none of us have ever heard of. <laughs> and, and oh, all of the yeah. music journalists were writing about fire shot up in my bones yeah so yeah, 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 true, yeah. Fair. true fair so opera professionals are listening to podcasts great 
And they're listening to Aria Code. Great. I'd say we have a good suggestion for a few of them. I might I, have one. I, Dear New York Times. Yeah, Colin. yeah. <laughs> I legitimately thought I was the only person in the world that listened to Switched on Pop. So I was just excited. I was like, you too? I love them. <laughs> have you guys listened to that show before? I never have, no. It's a it's a it's an ASCAP songwriter and a musicologist, and they break down what in oh, pop music yeah. is. I did like I did hear an episode of that. That was interesting. It's pretty rad. It's pretty rad, and it talks about you know here are the reasons that this pop music is catchy. Here are the songwriting tricks that they use. Here is how this actually sounds a lot like a Baroque French piece, and that's why for reasons unknown it feels good to you. So it's, it's a cool show. <laughs> so the when French you're done listening to our show, it's the double dotting. <laughs> Normally, <laughs> is that a euphemism? <laughs> can if you want it to be. So, so of all the of all the opera houses in all the cities in the world, why is it Madrid that is able to get back to full capacity? Previously, it was at seventy five percent. I mean, we'll uh, see. That, I feel like Spain has had a pretty bad track record over the past few months uh, with o- opening early um, and saying things are. You know, I mean. Yeah, maybe they're to, just done with rules. Yeah, compared to the USA, you know, not necessarily. I mean, they're not in our league. Uh, but, but as far as Europe the goes, done with rules champions yeah, over here, yeah, exactly. undefeated since 1776. Yeah, scoot scoot. We'll we'll Got see it. what happens with the full capacity. I'll I'll be uh, obviously we'll be keeping an eye on that um, because uh, every every opera house in the country as vaccines roll out is start is trying a different strategy. And uh, it's going to be interesting and hopefully not too harrowing to see how it all plays out. Oh, yikes. It gives me the, the shivers to, to think about that. Can, can we just give every opera house in the world a director of belonging? Can we do that? <laughs> That's <laughs> belonging the best and inclusion. title ever. But of course, all I could think of was that song, We Belong. Who did that? Pat Benatar. Pat Benatar. We to the, yeah, so I'm like, we belong to Omaha. We everybody gets a seat at the table. I don't know. I just I'm like, there's a jingle in there somewhere. In an ideal world, every opera house would get a Will Liverman too. I mean, the man is having a moment, and it couldn't is, be more is deserved. Is Will Liverman uh, the new uh, James Dara? Because or we, the I feel new, like we keep... or maybe he's I... the new Mark Campbell. The new. <laughs> Do we have an update to the hardest working man in showbiz competition? Because it kind of seems like we might. It's one of those three for sure. I mean, they're all different professions, of course. You know, Dara's the director, Campbell's the librettist, and Will. We'll just have to set up a singer. couple divisions. Yeah. <laughs> what happens when they all go in the same room? Does like everything just explode? No one does anything. <laughs> You've never seen all of them in the room at the same time. I was about to make that joke, Ashley. Yeah, when, uh, when they're all in the same room, they just sit around eating chips. Uh, I'm hungry. And they're like, we need a minute. They, we they, need a minute. They, they do. Uh, before we move on, I do want to talk a little bit about Amanda Holden, because I, I mm. didn't know her uh, her or her work. Well, I, I, I did know her work uh, indirectly. I just didn't know it was hers. Um, she's a fast. She was a fascinating person. She, uh, yeah. you know. She did her first uh, opera translation uh, way back in the 80s, I believe, with uh, English National Opera. For Jonathan Miller. Yeah. Yeah. And and, uh, suddenly became an expert in this extremely specific field of translating (laughs) operas into English. But the but the knowledge that takes of music, of culture, of like, you know. Uh, uh, what like certain dictionaries absolutely 
and and, and applying that to some new librettos too. Truly, it, there's a there's a really cool Guardian article uh, which came out uh, maybe a week ago, um, which uh, which is uh, uh, sort of focuses on her, sort of an obituary. But I highly highly recommend all our listeners go check it out because um, <laughs> it's a great example. I I feel like sometimes we can get a little bit caught up. Um, as opera people, like thinking about singers and composers that we sometimes neglect librettists or people who are doing something incredibly creative, incredibly difficult in a kind of a weird field like translation, which is often very underappreciated. Um, and uh, I, I think we should try to rectify that a little bit um, by directing our audience as a first step to direct our audience to this article about her. She's fascinating. Her, her name is Amanda Holden, and I recommend you look her up. We'll put a link to that uh, on the website. Yeah, it is a true skill writing translations, not even just titles, but translations without without reinventing especially that piece sing- singable ones. Yeah, that. yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, if getting away from the sort of dreadful Ruth Martin translations of Mozart, you know, from the <laughs> is it the Shermer score? They're just sort of unbearable. I remember and uh, and finding a, a a singable score that makes sense in a in a translation. I mean, I, I, my, I have a recording of Lulu, which has, a, for some reason, the libretto it came with, it, the, the translation is in a singable, singable English score, and it's terrible. I, you can't understand what's happening. Well, Nothing just makes try sense. to listen to Lulu without singing along, Weston. <laughs> <laughs> it's you know a toe tapper. Do. <laughs> don't, don't start. Whatever you do, quickly, let's wrap the show up. Good call. Bad call. On Opera Box Score. Oh, man. Great to have a great crew in tonight. Oliver Camacho out for having a much-deserved break. Good call. Bad call. Going to kick it off with Matt Cummings. Yes. Yeah, so our uh, little backwater town of Chicago made it big, getting written up in the <laughs> New York Times review wow. of classical music. Uh, they called out the Collaborative Arts Institute of Chicago and uh, next um, the the production of Proving Up at Lyric Opera of Chicago that's so going to take place in January of next year. But that is missing quite a few highlights. That's my combination bad okay. call to write do a write-up and not mention Sandra Ravinovsky's Lady Macbeth debut. Like, come on, she's the queen. Show her some <laughs> <Literally. respect. laughs> Weston Williams still looking great in that t-shirt. Ashley Hardgrave. <laughs> um, I... I'm very happy. This is like a moment of joy that I'm so delighted about. Uh, so concert goers in Hanover, Germany are getting back to public performances. And one of the ways that they're keeping themselves safe, in addition to bringing in uh, negative COVID tests, is they have trained dogs to be able to sniff out, literally sniff out coronavirus with over 90% efficacy. So there are some very good, very good boys that get to hang out (laughs) outside a Hanover concert and sniff you and figure out if you've got COVID. And I think it's so wonderful. (laughs) Oliver's got a good call. He says, please find a September 15th public post from American root singer-songwriter Scott Ainsley. That's been shared 27,000 times on Facebook. It's too long to describe on the show. He says, just find it and read it. You'll be glad you did. And we'll be reminded why we do this despite all the obstacles. And I got a good call as well. Very close, near and dear friend of mine, Alex Timbers, won a Tony Award on Sunday night for the production of Moulin Rouge. Could not have happened to a better friend and a better artist. That's it for this week's show. 
Our announcer is Norm Waddell. He's at normwaddell.com. On Facebook, search for Opera Box Score. On Twitter and Instagram, we're at Opera Box Score. Help us deepen the bench of listeners on America's Talk Radio Show about opera by liking and sharing our social media posts. You can email us your hot takes, operaboxscore at gmail.com. Again, subscribe to the podcast on Stitcher. Just favorite the show on Apple Podcasts. You might even yell at Alexa and see if it happens to play. <laughs> our creative consultant is Oliver Camacho. Our audio and video editor is Weston Williams. For our guests, Rose Freeman and Angela Bourne, plus your co-hosts Matt Cummings and Ashley Hardgrave, I'm George Cedarquist asking you to continue the conversation about opera as you kick a 67-yard field goal. Back with an all-new show next week. Plus, you get more opera headlines, more hot takes, and yeah, more pumpkin spice lattes. Join us 